electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders recorded at CNBC's live events. Today, a conversation with Anita Jenkins. She's the CEO of Howard University Hospital in Washington, D.C., We talked about how her hospital has responded to the pandemic, an influx of patients, a shutdown of non-emergency services, and a staff of overwhelmed frontline workers. Jenkins spoke to my colleague Bertha Coombs at CNBC's Healthy Returns Spotlight on February 9th, 2021. Here's their conversation. Anita Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us. You know, and looking over your resume, it seems like you were made for this moment. You started your career as a respiratory therapist, and then here you are thrust in a leadership role just as the pandemic is getting underway. This could not have been your plan a year ago. I was so excited to come to Howard University Hospital uh, February 17th, 2020. My husband and I hadn't even found a home yet before we started hearing language about COVID. Before I understood maybe more than most executive leaders as a respiratory therapist, what we were facing. But it has been exciting and I do believe my time here has been purposeful. Um, I am. I was blessed to to journey with the staff and physicians, caregivers, and others to take care of this very special population, to change and adjust just about every other week to take care of the COVID population. It's been an, an exciting eleven months. I can tell you that. <laughs> you you say exciting, but it was terrifying in the beginning, not knowing if you were going to have enough beds. We didn't really know how to treat this. We were over-treating with ventilators. Tell me a little bit about how you managed those first few weeks, those first few months, as we were seeing that big surge. So we had to constantly bring the team together, right? What are the current CDC guidelines? What are we learning as a country and as a world about COVID and how it's behaving with our patients? our professors, our physicians, they were very clear to say, wait a minute, this is what they're saying this week. This is how we have to oxygenate them. This is how we treat them. We are proning our patients because they can breathe better. That's that's treating a patient face down. That's been done for years and years, but it just wasn't routine. And so it was very important for us to communicate often and communicate with our staff members. Very early on, we started having at least three times a week, we'd send out an email to the staff. This is what the CDC is saying. This is how we have to behave differently. Now we all have to wear masks all the time. So there was an adjustment almost every day. So communication, communication and information was the only way that we got through. And we rounded on the floors often. How are you doing? How are you feeling? We acknowledge people's fears, 
caregivers. We acknowledge their faith. We acknowledge their bravery to to just keep pushing through. So uh, that's that's how we just adjust it all of the time. And then, of course, finding more beds and opening up and listening to what is the community saying for us. So that's, um, you know, understanding what the district wanted us to do was all, all part of it. It was just a lot of work. You know, you're in a city that is predominantly people of color and you are at an institution that is dedicated to that population. What were some of the special things that you found you needed to do in order to help as people, brown people, Hispanics and blacks were especially hit hard by the virus? We had to acknowledge that our staff and our team members were also experiencing some of these things at their homes and in their families. Their grandmothers were ill or they don't have childcare. Their schools uh, were closed. So we had to we had to start thinking and keeping up with what was happening to our families in our community. It was happening to our leaders and our caregivers, our staff members and our physicians, that they knew someone who was sick or dying from COVID-19. So we had to also say, we're praying for you and we are working with you and who needs some time off? And then which employee might have tested positive? We needed to make sure that we were moving um, as best as we can to have as much testing capability as we could. That was huge. So there was a time, remember, if you remember back then, that, okay, all of the hospitals don't have testing capability. We don't have enough reagents to do as many tests. So we really worked hard to make sure we were getting there um, with with testing and treatment as well. As you have moved on through the year, you know, we've seen wave after wave. What are some of the learnings that you were able to apply, you know, as we've reached different levels of this crisis? I've been proud of healthcare as an industry to to keep up with um, with how we take care of this special population. Um, Yes, it's overwhelming if you get too many, but boy, we've learned how to at least, how do we take care of the patient that is moderately ill? How do we take care of the patient who is tested positive and may um, have the ability to stay home? And then how do we take care of the more critical patient who has to go to critical care because we want them to survive? And then how do we celebrate those that make it through? It was so exciting. I mean, we we sent home some patients and we stood in hallways and we cheered for them as they went home after weeks of critical of, of a critical experience. And they just had tears in their eyes and their families were worn out because they could see what a journey that had been. We just had to live it with them and help them to know that we cared about their lives and their futures. And how did you manage your staff and you yourself the stress for frontline workers, there is going to be so much PTSD. I I mean, I've talked with clinicians who just never experienced this kind of trauma continuously and seeing people die so often. It is extraordinary. And there were so many clinicians who truly had to seek help. You know, we sought out some ways and and put out some information. Here's how you detox. Here's how you rest. Here's how you, you know, here's how you meditate. It's hard to keep up with that type of ongoing um, challenge for for caregivers. One thing that I, I we made sure that we did as an as a leadership team, we were here. Never did we 
um, allow our staff to see or have a day that uh, they were not here with us. But then it was so interesting, and here in Washington, D.C., as we're fighting COVID, then came um, just that political uprise, right? So there were mm -hmm. protests on our street. And then people were, you know, we're, we're concerned about black and brown people. We, we are hearing, we, we know about um, injustices and we are dying at a greater um, uh, level or two to three times more than others. So it was very important for us to address and be present about what was going on around us in Washington, D.C. Our residents and some of our leaders, we knelt um, for those eight minutes right here on our property in solitude that we are caregivers that care about what's going on around us. We had to keep that in mind. So we had to be aware of we had to be aware of everything that was going on. And um, I, I just felt it a privilege to, to just be a part of it and walk with the team. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. There's been so much discussion about Black and Brown communities being hesitant to accept the vaccine. What have you seen within your own institution when it comes to inoculation? So for me, I was elated when we first started talking about a vaccine coming down the pike and we were close to, um, to FDA approval, right? I had a meeting with 120 of my uh, leaders on a Zoom call and I'm giving them the update and they started saying, but what about Tuskegee? But what about experiments on black and brown people? We are concerned. I'm not going to take it. I'm hesitant. I knew right then that if my leaders and long-term healthcare providers and caregivers, if they had these this level of fear and had hesitancies, we had to start communicating information, science, and update them. Um, and then uh, even in that Zoom call, uh, someone wrote, if you take it, I'll take it. So before the vaccine became available, we started communicating every single day with Q&As, just questions and answers about the vaccine, how it was developed, how it was tested, what were the clinical trials like, um, what did we see regarding black and brown people. And one of the mantras that I said was, this is a worldwide pandemic. The mm -hmm. vaccine is a worldwide solution to a battle we're losing. This is a weapon that can help us win, is what, is what I said to all of the staff members. I allowed them to have questions, no matter how bizarre, or because those were sincere questions. There were people that asked me questions, you know, can I, will I be able to nurse my baby if I get a vaccine? Or will it change my DNA if I take this? So they, they were really broad and so with our infectious disease doctors and our professors from Howard University, we were able to get some amazing answers, answer their questions. And then very quickly, we were ready to do that vaccine. I was first to fight. I did take it first. And while um, before the vaccine came out, about 70% of our, our, our staff members were hesitant or did not want to take it. That number has come down significantly, and we have vaccinated a good portion of our staff members and physicians. You know, you talk about how this year has, has 
put a focus on health equity. We're seeing as the vaccination goes beyond frontline workers, the take-up rates uh, among mm -hmm. people of color is significantly lower, and particularly disproportionately lower to the amount they've suffered. I, I was, not that many are reporting, states are reporting those stats yet, but one of the ones that struck me was in Mississippi, where Blacks make up 40% of those who had suffered from COVID, but only 15% of those who have received the vaccine so far. Is that, you think, because of hesitance on the part of people to have the vaccine, or is it because of the way we're rolling it out? And how are you trying to combat that? I think the answer is yes and yes. I do believe people are still hesitant and we have to do a better job of telling the nation about the vaccine, the science of it, and how you can have 95% protection if you take this vaccine. Remind them of polio, when there were people in braces and iron lungs years ago, um, our seniors and people with any kind of tenure uh, in this world will remember and then say, yep, People don't get polio anymore. Help them feel more comfortable that this is not an attack on black and brown people. This is an opportunity for us to live and make it through this uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccination. We have to inform our team. We have to be a part of that. We have to still tell that story so that we can, um, so that we can address this in our whole world. It is important for us to have knowledge first and then acceptance. And hopefully seeing people and, and like what me. About, what about access? What about access itself, equitable access? Because obviously people who are better equipped at being able to sign up on their mobile phones and are more tech savvy are gonna snap up those, those appointments faster. How do you make sure that people who might be in the rear don't get left behind? It is difficult to make sure that access is accessible to everyone. I think we need to do it in all kinds of ways have people sign up on websites, have it on their phones, and maybe even have public vaccinations. Even if it means people are in line, we need to say, today we will vac publicly vaccinate 500 people and, and so that we can do it in all ways so that any kind of, um, um, any member of our community will have access. I agree with you. We've got to do it in all kinds of ways to address the community and their needs and their uh, capability to reach us. That was Anita Jenkins. She's the CEO of Howard University Hospital. She spoke with Bertha Coombs at CNBC's Healthy Return Spotlight on February 9, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For more information about upcoming CNBC events and how you can join in, visit CNBCEvents.com. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.